In Genesis chapters 1 through 11, we have been racing through human history. The first 11 chapters of Genesis cover a period of about 2,000 years, while the last 39 chapters span only 245 years. In other words, we're going to slow down starting tonight. We have jumped some giant chasms of understanding. And with not a lot of detail, what was life like before the flood? We know very little. What was life like before the fall of Adam? We know even less. What was life like before the first creative work? (laughs) All we know is God. In Genesis 1 through 11, God works with mankind as a whole. And I might add, with very little success. In fact, chapter 11 closes with a worldwide revolt. Satan chooses a man, Nimrod. A place, Babel, and a means, fear. And God has to bust up the mutiny. If I were to ask you to divide the Bible into two parts, where would you put the break? Most people would put the break between Malachi and Matthew, the Old and New Testaments, but not me. I would insert the division here between Genesis chapter 11 and Genesis chapter 12. For in Genesis 12, God's strategy changes. No longer is he going to work with mankind as a whole. Instead, he picks out one family through whom he will perform his work of redemption. And beginning in chapter 12, God chooses a man, Abram. God chooses a place, Canaan. And God chooses a means, faith. And through this one family, God begins to work his marvelous plan of redemption. The rest of the Bible is the story of that plan that God works through the Hebrew people, through the family of Abram. Chapter 12 begins with God's call to this man, Abram. Now, the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, we learn from Stephen in Acts chapter 7 that God's call originally came to Abram while he was living in Mesopotamia. In Genesis 11, verse 28 We're told that Abram lived in Ur of the Chaldees, one of the wealthiest and most sophisticated hubs of ancient civilization. While living in Ur, Abram married a Hur, a woman named Sarai. The name means contentious, which to me proves that in those days the marriages were arranged because what man in his right mind would deliberately marry a woman Name contentious. One day, Abram comes home from work. And he announces to Sarah, honey, we're going to move. Start packing. I'm sure she got excited. She probably began to think, wow, he finally got a promotion. He finally got a raise. Uptown Ur, here we come. Let's buy into one of those swim and tennis clubs. And I can hear her ask, honey, where exactly are we going to move? (laughs) But she wasn't ready for the answer. Abram looked at her and said, well, uh, well, mm, uh, mm. I don't know. God's told me to move. He just hasn't told me where. (laughs) And remember, her name was contentious. So you know what happened next. A heated discussion took place. Look, though, at the threefold promise that God makes to Abram. A chunk of land, his descendants will be a great nation, and through him all the world will be blessed. This promise is what we call the Abrahamic covenant. 
One of the most important covenants in all of the Bible. It's repeated throughout tonight's text. To Abram in Genesis 12, again in 13, 15, 17, and 22. To his son Isaac in chapter 26. And finally, to Abraham's grandson Jacob in chapters 28 and 35. Obviously, as far as God is concerned, this is a very significant strategic covenant. Actually, the Abrahamic covenant is the bedrock for the entire Bible. It's foundational. The rest of this book that you hold in your hand, from Genesis chapter 12 to Revelation chapter 22, really just fills in the details to this threefold promise. You understand this covenant, and you'll understand the rest of the Bible. And here's the promise in a condensed version. Just three words. Land, nation, blessing. And if you want an easy way to remember it, here it is. Sod, seed, salvation. Write it down. It's very important. You'll come back to it over and over. The Abrahamic covenant, sod, seed, salvation. Now, the covenant began with the promise of land. God tells Abram to get out of his country, away from his relatives, and move to a place that is yet to be revealed. Hebrews 11 verse 8 testifies of Abram's faith. And he went out not knowing where he was going. The problem, though, is that Abram was not completely obedient to God. He was to leave behind his family. Instead, he took his dad, Terah. He took his brother, Nahor, and he took his nephew, Lot. And he was supposed to move to the land that God would show him. Instead, he pulls up 400 miles short. It's about a 1,000 miles from Ur to Canaan. Abram traveled only about 600 miles up the Euphrates River and settled in a place called Haran. Abram's initial foray in faith demonstrates what can happen to us. He followed God, but he followed God only halfway. You see, a believer can make a break with the past, but not a complete break. And rather than move to a new land that God shows them, they can simply move a little upstream like Abram. It's been said, a backslidden believer has too much of the world to enjoy God and too much of God to enjoy the world. That's the difficulty for a person who follows God halfway. I like how Barnhouse put it. They have enough Christianity to be miserable in a nightclub but not enough to be happy in a prayer meeting. (laughs) Nobody is more miserable than a partial follower of Jesus. Notice Abram's home of compromise was a place called Haran, which, by the way, means parched. And when you compromise your commitment with God, understand that you end up parched, empty, spiritually dry. It seems that Abram didn't fully follow God until his dad died. Terah was holding him back. And let me ask you tonight, what is the Terah in your life? What needs to die for you to become a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ? You see, often faith begins with a funeral. It's only when we bury an old desire or an old habit or an old relationship that we're free to move on with God. Terah dies and Abraham moves. And he finally arrives in Canaan. And there God affirms his promise. Verse 7 of chapter 12 says, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. Notice it's only after Abram obeys God, that God confirms his promise. You know, so often we want God to confirm, then we'll obey. But that's not God's way. God blesses our faith. Take God at his word. Act on his promise. Then God will confirm to you his will. In chapter 15, verse 18, God clarifies the boundaries of the land that Abraham will occupy. Not only does God include the West Bank, Gaza, 
in the Golan Heights, what are today the disputed territories, if you read carefully in Genesis, he also gives to Abraham the lion's share of Egypt, the Sinai, Lebanon, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Syria, Iraq. How does Saddam think about that? And even Kuwait. Today, the area of Israel is about 8,000 square miles, about the size of New Jersey. But one day, it's going to be a total of 300,000 square miles. That's the land that God has promised Abram. And notice verses 13, chapter 13, verses 14 and 15. There we're told the duration of the promise. God tells Abram, All the land which you see, I will give to you and your descendants. For how long? Forever. God's forever makes for a pretty long lease. Forever. And despite what the United States government says, despite what the world community tells us, the promised land belongs not to the Arabs, but to the family of Abram, to the Jews. We're also told in chapter 13, verses 7 through 9, what Abram does after God confirms his promise to him. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. And so Abram journeyed going on still toward the south. But notice what the man keeps building everywhere he goes. He could have dug wells for water. He could have built houses for shelter. He could have built forts for protection. Instead, he builds altars. Everywhere he goes, he builds altars. Notice his top priority was not sustenance. It was not comfort. It was not even his own protection. It was worship. Abram builds altars so that he can worship God. Now, maybe you're in the process of building a home. That's good. Maybe you're in the process of building a business. Maybe you're building a fortune. Maybe you're building a family. But as you journey through life, is your priority that of building altars? It should be. Are you stopping along the way to worship God? Everywhere Abram went, he built an altar to worship God. How about you? Of all the Old Testament heroes, Abram stands out as a man of faith. Genesis 15 verse 6 says of Abram, And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Guys, this is a foundational statement. It's quoted four times in the New Testament. Romans 4 verse 3, 4 22. Galatians 3, 6, and James 2, verse 23. In fact, this is the verse that the Apostle Paul quotes in order to prove that we obtain and maintain a right standing with God, not because of what we do or don't do, but because of our faith in God's promise. All God's blessings are received by faith and faith alone. As Mark Twain once quipped, Heaven goes by favor. If it went by merit, you would stay out and your dog would go in. God pours out his blessings not on people who think they deserve them, but on folks who trust in his amazing grace. The faith that inherits God's blessing is illustrated in chapter 15 by the way God seals the covenant with Abram. According to custom, Abram slaughtered a series of animals. He cut them in cross sections from head to toe. Then he arranged the animal halves in a corridor. Half of one animal on this side, half of one animal, and then in succession all the way down until a corridor had been formed. Whenever a covenant was entered into, the two parties would walk side by side between the animal halves as a sign that they both were going to take their part 
of the covenant and fulfill their responsibility to the contract. You thought your house closing was a hassle. Imagine signing this type of covenant. Well, when Abraham had finished slicing up the beef, he sat down to wait on God. He literally expected God to appear and walk with him through the animal halves. He waited all day. He waited into the evening until finally, just as he was nodding off, God appeared in the form of a burning torch and a smoking censer. And instead of walking with Abram together down the corridor, God walked it by himself. All Abraham did was wake up, look on, and believe. Here's the lesson. Salvation is not a tag team effort. It's not up to us to meet God halfway. The blessing of God is not received by God doing half the work and then the recipient of the blessing doing half the work. God does all the work. He takes sole responsibility for earning the blessing. All I have to do is to wake up, look on, and have faith. I can do that. How about you? I'm sure Abram never forgot his experience among the animal parts. But God wanted all Abram's descendants to remember the terms of this covenant. And that's why in chapter 17, God prescribes a surgical symbol for all Jewish males. Circumcision became the family crest for the family of Abram. In fact, there's even a tree today named after Jewish circumcision. You know what it is? The juniper tree. The Jew-nipper tree. You got it. Had to say it twice. A little slow. Now, hey. Abram was 99 years old when God commanded him to be circumcised. That's why he's such a man of faith. (laughs) And because of his faith, God gave to Abram a new name. In chapter 17, verse 5, he says, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. And of course, Abraham means father of many nations. Understand, Abraham was a man of faith, but his faith wasn't perfect. From time to time, Abram was guilty of a lapse of faith. One example is back in chapter 12, when famine hits the land of Canaan. Rather than trust God to provide, Abram heads for Egypt. And when Abram gets there, he has an interesting conversation with old contentious. You remember Sarai. He tells her in verse 11, Indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. So far, so good. Therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you, that they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say, You are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. Now you know why she was so contentious, having to live with a jerk like Abraham. (laughs) Nothing like laying down your life for your woman. It's interesting. Sarah, at this point, was 65 years old. Abram is going to have a similar lapse of faith among the Philistines. Over in chapter 20, when she's 90 years old. And the same concern arises. Even at 90, she was still a gorgeous girl. Imagine being on Social Security and still able to win a beauty pageant. On both occasions, though, Abram didn't want to get knocked off, even for a knockout. And so he lies. He calls her his sister. It's amazing 
Between the two incidents, there's a period of about 25 years. During that interval, we're sure that Abram's faith grew, that his knowledge of God increased. But apparently, he never took the time to restructure his thinking toward his wife and toward his fears. And so when thrown into the same situation 25 years later, he responds in exactly the same way. This is what happens to you and I. We enter into a relationship with God. We begin to grow spiritually. And then a situation pops up that pressures us for a response. And since we've never, to re- we've never retrained our minds to think God's way, we revert back to the way we used to cope in similar circumstances. We fall into the same trap because we've never transformed our thinking to see our circumstances from God's perspective and to tailor a response that's pleasing to Him. Now, here's the real scary truth, especially for parents. The apple never falls far from the tree. Fast forward to Genesis 26, and you find Abram's son, Isaac, repeating the same blunder with his wife. He's among the Philistines. He's fearful for his life. And so he tells them that Rebekah is his sister. He married a pretty girl just like daddy, but he treats her in the same selfish way. Guys, if for no other reason but your kids, you need to renew your mind. You need to retrain your thinking. You need to teach yourself how to see life from God's perspective and how to cope with situations in ways that are pleasing and glorifying to God. We have to renew our minds. Hey, nothing good comes from a lapse of faith. And when Abram comes back from Egypt, he brings with him two items that cause cause him problems later. Herds and Hagar. And both are trouble. First, he returns with large herds that cause he and his nephew Lot to split and go their separate ways. Their flocks were too large to graze together, so Lot moves east towards Sodom. It's interesting to note Lot's progression. You want to jot these verses down, go back and look them up later. But in chapter 13, verse 12, Lot pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. When Sodom is attacked by a coalition of kings from the north, chapter 14, verse 12 tells us that Lot dwelt in Sodom. Toward Sodom, now in Sodom. And then in 19, verse 1, when the angels are sent to rescue Lot, we find him sitting in the gate of Sodom. He's right in the heart of Sodom. You see, Lot was drawn into Sodom slowly but surely. And this is how compromise happens in our lives. It's been said, seldom does a Christian fail because of a blowout. Most of the time, it's the result of a slow leak. You see, the path to Sodom is a gradual slope. It's not sudden turns. It's a lot of little compromises that pile up. Twice, Abram helps Lot. He rescues him from the kings of the north, and on his return home, he pays tithes in chapter 14 to a mysterious fellow by the name of Melchizedek. And we'll talk more about Melchizedek when we get to Hebrews chapter 7. The second time Abram helps Lot is when he intercedes in prayer for Sodom in chapter 18, verse 16. He asks God to spare Sodom for just ten righteous citizens. But you see, Sodom was wicked beyond repair. Ezekiel chapter 16 Verses 49 and 50 outlines all of Sodom's sin, but certainly sexual perversion ran rampant in Sodom. In other words, it was gay pride day every day in Sodom and Gomorrah. That's where we get the term sodomy, from the city of Sodom. This city was ripe for judgment. And that's why Genesis 19, verse 24 tells us that the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. I think it was Billy Graham who said, If God does not judge America, he will have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. 
Guys, we are on the same road, traveling the same path. And our country, because of its permissiveness, because of its laxitude towards sexual perversions and acceptance of sexual perversions, is headed toward judgment. The consequences of Lot's compromise with Sodom are sad indeed. As he and his family exited the city, you remember, Mrs. Lot turned back. And true to the angel's warning, she turned into a pillar of salt, a podium of sodium. (laughs) You know, Lot managed to remain a righteous man while living in Sodom, but Sodom lived in the hearts of Lot's family. And that's why, Dad, Mom, you need to be careful. Because you can make little compromises in your life, and you might be able to withstand them and and live, you know, apart from the temptation. But those little compromises, they're going to get into the hearts of your kids. Your compromises are going to become full-blown sin in the life of your children. This is what happened to Lot. He managed to remain righteous, but his wife loved Sodom's possessions and looked back with a longing gaze. His daughters learned Sodom's perversions and ended up getting their own father drunk so he would sire their sons, Ammon and Moab. Compromise with sin brings dire consequences on you and your family. The other item Abram brought back from Egypt that caused him problems was a maid named Hagar. You remember the second part of the Abrahamic covenant, a seed, descendants. Sarah, Abraham's wife, would have a son, but there was a snag. By this time, Sarah was 75. And even a megadose of fertility drug wouldn't help a 75-year-old woman conceive. And so Sarah comes up with a plan. She will bear a child via her surrogate, Hagar. But immediately the plan backfires. It blows up in Abraham's face. He learns firsthand the painful truth that a sinful plan can never produce godly results. Remember that. We're told in chapter 16, verses 4 and 5, And when Sarah saw that Hagar had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Then Sarah said to Abram, My wrong be upon you. Wait a minute. Old contentious blames Abram for what was her idea. She continues, I gave my maid into your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judged between me and you. (laughs) The baby isn't even born, and war erupts. Hagar gets haughty, Sarai gets jealous, and poor Abram gets caught between two feuding females. Hey, when you step out in your own energy and in your own ingenuity, and try to help God fulfill His promise, guys, you will only complicate matters. Abraham's lapse of faith caused a war between Sarai and Hagar, and it eventually caused hostilities between Ishmael and Isaac. In chapter 21, the sibling rivalry escalates to the point to where God encourages Abraham to give Hagar and Ishmael provision and send them away. Even today... Ishmael and Isaac remain at each other's throats. The hostilities in the Middle East between Jew and Arab are the direct result of Abram's lapse of faith. Always remember, try to do God's will your way, and you ultimately will make a mess of the situation. We need to have faith. We need to trust God to do His work, His way, in His time. In chapter 17, verses 19 through 21, God clarifies which of Abraham's sons will be his heir. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. 
I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him. God blesses him back in chapter 16. And will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. And he shall beget 12 princes and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. Verse 21 is crucial to understanding the modern Middle East. Islam teaches that Ishmael and Isaac were co-heirs of the covenant that God made with Abraham. And thus the land belongs to Jew and Arab alike. But that's not what the Bible here teaches. Ishmael was certainly blessed by God, no doubt about it. But he never received the birthright. The covenant was deliberately passed on not to Ishmael, but to Isaac. You see, the true God is not the God of Abraham, Ishmael, and Isaac, as is taught by Islam. No, the true God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In chapter 17, verses 15 through 17, God changes Sarah's name from contentious to Sarah, which means princess. I like He also reaffirms his promise to give her a son. And we're told in verse 17, the reaction of Abraham, that great man of faith, he fell on his face and laughed. When the baby's finally born, they name him Isaac, which means laughter. But how many of us wouldn't laugh at such a promise? A hundred-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman bearing a child? Oh, Abraham becomes a dad before he's been on... He becomes a dad after he's been on Social Security for 45 years. Imagine that. Sarah uses Medicare to pay for a labor and delivery. That was a first and a last. But not only did Abraham laugh at God's promise, so did God's princess, Sarah. In chapter 18, messengers show up at Abraham's tent and they reaffirm the promise of the son. And Sarah eavesdrops. And we're told in verse 12, she laughed within herself. It was inside. It wasn't audible. She laughed inside. But God heard it. God heard it. And the messenger reminds her, And we need to be reminded of the same truth. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Have faith. Trust Him. Chapter 18, verse 1, says it was the Lord who appeared to Abraham at Mamre. Verse 13 of the same chapter says, And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? This word Lord is the Hebrew word Jehovah. And apparently it was Jehovah God who showed up at Abraham's tent. He was one of the three visitors, God himself. This may explain Jesus' statement in John 8, verse 56 and 57. There Jesus told the Pharisees, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Well, when did Jesus see Abraham? Perhaps Jesus was one of these three visitors. What we have in chapter 18 could be a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. By the way, Did you hear that Abraham wanted to upgrade his personal computer to Windows 98? Did you hear about this? Isaac said, Pop, you can't run Windows 98 on your old slow 486. You need at least a Pentium 2 processor with a minimum of 64 megabytes of memory in order to multitask effectively with Windows 98. But Abraham, the man of faith, gazed at his son and replied, 
God will provide the ram. <laughs> Which brings us to chapter 22. <clears throat> For after Isaac is born, Abraham's faith is tested. God tells him in verse 2, Take now your son. Notice, your only son, Isaac. Notice God doesn't even recognize Ishmael as a child of Abraham, let alone as an heir to the covenant. That means that if God doesn't mention Ishmael at all, it means that he has forgotten Abraham's sin with Hagar. Hey, where God forgives, he forgets. And isn't it a joy to know that God forgets the works of our flesh? He forgets the lapses of our faith. We are made righteous, not by what we do or don't do, but by faith in God's promise. God tells Abraham to take Isaac and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now here is the ultimate test of faith. Imagine raising a butcher knife with the intent of slitting the throat of one of your sons. That, that just boggles me to try to think about that. And besides, Isaac was heir to God's promise. Why, why offer Isaac? According to Hebrews 11 verse 9, Abraham had come to a conclusion. He had concluded that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Abraham was willing to offer Isaac because he believed that God would resurrect his son. Now, the writer of the book of Hebrews, he infers that this was not only a test for Abraham, but this was figurative. This was a picture for us. Father Abraham travels to Moriah to offer his only son, God the Father, made the same trip some 2,000 years later to offer his only son, Jesus. Moriah was one of the hills of Jerusalem. And in Abraham's day, there was a settlement about halfway up the hill that means that Abraham would have probably climbed to the very top peak. That was a place that was later called Calvary. Abraham offered his son on the exact same spot that God would later offer his son. Notice two of the details here. Verse 6 says that Abraham took the wood for the sacrifice and he laid it on Isaac. Jesus also carried the wood up the hill, carried the cross. In verse 2, now, verse 3, there were two men who traveled with Abraham to offer Isaac, and there were two thieves on the cross that witnessed the sacrifice of the heavenly father, of his son. Notice when Isaac died in the mind of Abraham. Obviously, it was when he left to make the trip. What's intriguing is that according to verse 4, it took three days to reach Moriah. And thus, from Abraham's perspective, his son Isaac rose from the dead on the third day. Likewise, the Son of God rose again on the third day. Psalm 22 is a picture of the cross from the perspective of the Son. But Genesis 22 gives us the Father's perspective of what went on on the cross. Let's pick up the story in verse 10. And as we read what happens on the mount, try to imagine what's going on in Abraham's heart. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And so he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And so Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. 
And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide, or in Hebrew, Jehovah-Jireh. Isaac was not the sinless sacrifice that God would ultimately require. And that's why he stopped the hand of Abraham. 2,000 years later, God did not stop his own hand. And Jesus, the Lamb of God, was sacrificed as your substitute, as my substitute. This picture, though, of Jesus doesn't end with this sacrifice. In Genesis 24, Abraham sends out a servant to find Isaac a bride. And guess what the servant's name is? You have to go back to chapter 15 to discover it. But if you go back there and look in verse 2, you're told that the servant's name is Eleazar, which means comforter. Now, this Eleazar, he travels to a distant city and he finds a gorgeous girl, a virgin by the name of Rebecca. He woos her with gifts. He talks about life back in his master's house. Eleazar brings the girl home and in verse 63 of chapter 24, we see Isaac for the first time since he was offered up on Mount Moriah. Two chapters later, he suddenly appears again as he comes out to meet his bride. What an awesome picture. After Jesus rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven out of our sight. And since then, God the Father has sent out a comforter into the world, the Holy Spirit. And what is he doing? He's drawing out for Christ a virgin bride. The church, you and I, are the virgin bride of Christ. We're being wooed by the Comforter with gifts, with blessings. But we won't see our groom until when? Until he comes out to greet his bride. Until we're raptured. And it took faith for Rebecca to follow the Comforter. Likewise, it takes faith. For you and I to be saved. And note also in chapter 24, verse 67, the first use in the Bible of the word love. And Isaac loved Rebekah. And you know what? If you want to know what real love is all about, you need to turn to Jesus Christ. He'll teach you. He'll show you what real love is all about. It's all a type. It's all a picture of Jesus. Isaac is an interesting fellow. Abraham built altars. Isaac dug wells. In chapter 26, verse 18, we're told, Isaac dug again the wells of water which they had dug in the days of Abraham, his father, for the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. Isaac unplugged the watering holes that his father had once dug. Here's another lesson. Satan wants nothing more than to plug up the spiritual watering holes. He will bury, if he can, the joys of prayer, of worship, of Bible study. He will try to bury those practices under mounds and mounds of tradition and even legalism and often neglect. And so many times it takes a new generation, an Isaac, if you will, to redig the well and to rediscover and reemphasize the significance of what was lost. Isaac redigs these wells of refreshment. Isaac's wife, Rebekah, gives birth to two sons, twins, named Esau and Jacob. Esau was a hairy little rascal. He came out looking like a bear cub. Esau means hairy. Jacob means heel catcher. And it seems that he was trying to overtake his older brother even from his mother's womb. In fact, part of the prophecy given while the boys were still in Rebekah's womb was the older shall serve the younger. 
That prophecy became a reality one day when Esau returned from the fields, famished. Jacob, the hill catcher, must have anticipated his need. For he just happened to have a pot of stew on the stove. And when Esau asked for a bowl, Jacob responded in chapter 25, verse 31, Sell me your birthright. And for one sorry bowl of chili, Esau sold his right to the Abrahamic covenant to Jacob. The most spectacular swindle of all time. Now God had promised the birthright to Jacob. And through faith and patience, he would have inherited it. But instead... He tried to achieve God's will his way. And as we've seen before, that gets you into lots of trouble. We're going to discover in chapter 28 that what goes around comes around. Jacob was deceptive. But at least he had spiritual desires. Esau didn't care about anyone's blessing, even if it was God's. He could do it himself. Jacob had faith, Esau didn't. And this is why God says in Malachi chapter 1, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And as we see over and over again in this section, the difference is made by faith. Jacob swindles his brother, and in chapter 27 he deceives his dad. Rebekah overhears that the time has come for Isaac to bestow the family blessing on Esau. And again, rather than trust in God, she concocts a scheme. She kicks, cooks up a stew, a beef stew, using Esau's favorite recipe. And then she puts sheepskins on Jacob's arms so that makes him feel hairy. She knows her husband is about blind. And he'll think that Jacob is actually Esau and she'll bless, he'll, he will bless Jacob instead of Esau. And the plan works. Isaac does bless Jacob instead of Esau. And when Esau returns from the fields and he realizes that he's been conned again, he gets mad. He cries out for justice. He wants Isaac to reverse the blessing, but Isaac stands by the blessing. In Hebrews 11, verse 20, we're told, By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau. Apparently, Isaac sensed. That providence had been done, that God's will had taken place, that yes, indeed, the young, the older would serve the younger. Esau threatens to kill Jacob. And therefore, Rebekah sends him away. And in chapter 28, Jacob heads northeast to Haran to find a bride, but understand the tragedy. In chapter 27, verse 44, Rebekah tells Jacob to stay in Haran, and she says, a few days. He ends up staying there 20 years. And there's a very good chance that Rebekah never saw her favorite son again. Guys, I'm telling you, try to do God's will your way. And you're going to create painful consequences for you and for the people that you love. We saw it in Abraham's liaison with Hagar. We see it again in Rebekah's scheme. The road north takes Jake to a place called Luz, which means separation. Later, Jacob will rename this place Bethel, which means house of God. Jacob had been separated from his father's house, but at Bethel he becomes a part of God's household. Bethel, understand, was more than a pit stop. It was the turning point in Jacob's life. Jacob was exhausted from his ordeal with Esau. And so by the time he got to Bethel, he was so tired that all he wanted to do was go to sleep. He didn't even mind curling up and using a rock as a pillow. And in verse 12, we're told, Then he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth. And its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And in the verses that follow, God reaffirmed to Jacob the covenant that he made to Abraham 
and to Isaac. It also belonged to Jacob and his 12 sons. Reminds me of the boy who told his longtime girlfriend, I had a dream last night that I proposed to you. What do you think it means? The frustrated girlfriend responded, It means you're smarter asleep than you are awake. (laughs) And you can make the same statement about Jacob. He's a conniver and he's a schemer. And yet in a dream, he sees a glorious vision of a ladder reaching into the heavens. We have to wait about 2,000 years to understand the meaning of this dream. What the latter represents. But in John chapter 1 verse 51, Jesus speaks to Nathanael. And Jesus says of himself, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. And he conjures up the dream of Jacob and applies it to himself. Jesus is the latter that reaches from earth to heaven. In chapter 28, Jacob dreams. In chapter 29, he meets the girl of his dreams. Oh, how he loved Rachel. And he agreed to serve her father Laban seven years for her hand in marriage. Verse 20 sums up those seven years in a beautiful way. And they seemed only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. I I love that. There was only one problem. As in many parts of the Middle East, even today, there was a custom that the older sister should marry before the younger. And Rachel had an older sister by the name of Leah. And in all likelihood, old Leah was not going to get married anytime soon. And verse 17 explains why. Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. The phrase, Leah's eyes were delicate, can either mean that she had weak, ugly little eyes, or she was so ugly that she made your eyes hurt. Either way, Leah was not a very attractive young lady. And her chances for marriage were slim. I'm sure that Jacob thought the custom had been overlooked. Or else he had been an exception to the rule. That is, until the morning after the wedding night. Remember, there were no electric lights in the honeymoon suite. And the brides wore long, flowing veils. And that's why Jacob rolled over that first morning of marriage to look into the eyes of his beautiful bride. And there were those delicate eyes. It's Leah. What have I done? Jacob was steamed. He had been double-crossed. He had been swindled. And he runs into Laban to complain. And in verse 26... Laban slaps him between the eyes with the truth. It must not be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. In other words, boy, I'm going to teach you a few lessons about the firstborn and about the rights of the firstborn. Talk about poetic justice. What goes around comes around. The swindler gets swindled. I believe that God sent Jacob to Haran in order for him to look into a mirror called Laban. (laughs) Jacob learns of God's goodness at Bethel, but he learns of his own wickedness at Haran. Laban was just like him. Jacob marries Rachel also but it costs him another seven years. And during those seven years, he builds a family. Leah has his first four sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Rachel, though, becomes jealous. And she blames Jacob that she's barren. And in chapter 30, verse 1, she says, Give me children or else I die. 
That's a way to communicate with your spouse. And Jacob's anger was aroused against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? So she said, here is my maid Bilhah. Go into her. Jacob and Rachel make the same mistake that Abraham and Sarah made. And guys, it turns out no better. Same consequences. Attempt God's will your way and you're going to reap trouble. Bilhah bore Jacob two sons, Dan and Naphtali. But her deliveries did not deliver the family from its inner turmoil. The sisters were still squabbling. In fact, Naphtali means my wrestling. And when Rachel names him, she says in verse 8, With great wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister. Indeed, I have prevailed. I'm telling you, bigamy was never a good idea. Still isn't. When Leah sees what Rachel does, she gives her maid to Jacob. Zilpah bore Gad and Asher. Afterwards, Leah herself had two sons and a daughter, Issachar, Zebulun, and Dinah. Finally, in chapter 30, verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel. And God listened to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And so she called his name Joseph and said, The Lord shall add to me another son. And the Lord did. But it came at a very steep price. In chapter 35. Jacob and Rachel re-enter the land of Canaan. And as they near Bethlehem, Rachel goes into a life-ending labor. She dies, birthing her last son, Benjamin. When Jacob returns to Canaan, he comes back a humbled man. He has narrowly escaped a conflict with Laban, and he arrives fearing a confrontation with Esau. Jacob has seen God work on his behalf while living with Laban. God has protected him against a man as shrewd and as selfish as he had been. And in chapter 31, verse 41, Jacob tells us that Laban had reneged on several business deals, had even changed his wages ten times. And yet God had been faithful to protect and to prosper Jacob. You see, this man who once trusted only in his own schemes and in his own deceptions was now learning that he really could trust the Lord. And in Genesis 32, verse 1, we're given a brief description of what must have been a profound encounter. As they come back into the land, we're told, so Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. Don't you wish we'd gotten more detail? (laughs) And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. And he called the name of that place Mahanaim, or double camp. Jacob realized that God was camping with him. And hey, if you're a child of God, God is camping with you. The angels of God surround those who love the Lord. Hebrews 1 verse 14 refers to the angels as ministering spirits to the heirs of salvation. They're servants to those who have come to Christ. I believe in guardian angels. In chapter 32, verse 22, Jacob camps just beyond the Jabbok, the little brook that borders Israel and Jordan. The word Jabbok means emptying. And that's what Jacob does here. He sends his possessions and his family on ahead. He's all by himself now, bracing himself for Esau. You remember the last time he saw his brother. Esau vowed to kill him. He's worried. And that's why in the middle of the night, when the man appeared, Jacob started wrestling. I'm sure he assumed it was Esau. Trying to jump him in the middle of the night. And Jacob fought furiously. He was fighting for his very life. And he was fighting so intensely 
that the man had to loosen Jacob's grip. And so he touched his hip socket and threw it out of joint and then told Jacob to let him go. By now it was dawn. And it dawned on Jacob that he had been wrestling not with Esau, but he had been wrestling with God. We know that because later Jacob names the place Peniel or face of God. And Jacob says in verse 30, I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. I believe that Jacob was wrestling with Jesus. Another pre-incarnate appearance of our Lord. But let me ask you, who have you been wrestling with? You've been wrestling. I've seen your, the look on your face. You, you walk around with that chip on your shoulders like you're mad at the world, like the world is out to get you, like you've been wrestling all week. Who have you been wrestling? Perhaps you've been thinking that you've been wrestling your wife or your kids or that car that keeps breaking down or that ex-spouse that keeps giving me trouble. But in reality, it wasn't Esau at all. And you're not wrestling with all these other things. You know who you're wrestling with? You're wrestling with God. All your life, you've manipulated and you've connived to get your way. But now you've met your match. You've encountered a situation where you need help. Laban's behind you. Esau's in front of you. They both hate you. You have nowhere to go. Your back's against the wall. That's where Jacob's at. Perhaps that's where you are tonight. And I want you to see what Jacob does. When he realizes that he's been wrestling God, he stops fighting and he starts praying. He tightens his grip. And he refuses to let go until he receives a blessing. You see, Jacob finally admits his need. He's now desperate for God's blessing. Jacob has surrendered. He is no longer fighting God. He's now embracing God. And here's what happens. He says, I won't let you go until you bless me. Now he's putting as much effort into his faith as he was putting into his fight. This is how you and I need to approach God. We need to take all of the effort and energy that we put into fighting Him and we need to now put it into following Him. We need to grab hold of God with all our might and not let go until He gives us His richest and His highest. Aren't you desperate for God's blessing? We need to be desperate for God's blessing as Jacob was. Once Jacob stopped wrestling with God, it's amazing how smoothly he got along with Esau. In chapter 33, we have recorded the happy and harmonious reunion. In chapter 35, Jacob journeys to Bethel, the place where he first met God. And this time he builds an altar. In verses 10 through 12 of chapter 35, God again reaffirms the Abrahamic covenant, it's a very important promise. Sod, seed, salvation. This time at Bethel, God gives Jacob a new name. He calls him Israel, which means governed by God. Jacob, the schemer, the heel catcher, becomes governed by God. It's amazing how Jacob's life serves as a type of the nation that inherits his name. He's exiled because of his sin. While away, he yearns to return home. He develops into a crafty businessman. And the Jews today have certainly earned that reputation. He's preserved and he's prospered by the providence of God. He's a wanderer and finally he returns home at the Lord's command. All the same things have happened to the nation Israel. 
Next week, we're going to study Jacob's family and especially their treatment of their younger sibling, Joseph. And we're going to discover that Jacob's offspring did not share their father's brokenness and humility and surrender to God. In fact, in chapters 31 and 35, we find that the same family toyed with idols In chapter 34, verse 1, Dinah was attracted to pagan culture. In chapter 34, we find out that Simeon and Levi were vicious and violent men. In chapter 38, we see Judah guilty of moral compromise. And don't forget, Judah is the tribe from which Jesus the Messiah will eventually be born. Study Israel's family and you learn quickly that God's blessings are the result of grace, not merit. That's good news for families like ours, isn't it? (laughs) What's the key? Throughout, we've seen it. It's faith. How do you inherit the promises of God? It's by faith and faith alone. Remember chapter 15, verse 6. It's our memory verse for this week. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness.